TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Degnan. We're getting ready for... Interdependence Day, a panel discussion at the University of Scranton, Thursday, September 12th in the Rose Room from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. This year's event will be a talk on interdependence and the environment, climate change, what can we do? It's sponsored by the Greater Scranton Interdependence Committee and the United Way of Lackawanna and Wayne Counties. What exactly is Interdependence Day? We're going to find out. We've invited Beth Burkhauser and Lisa Temples. They're involved in Interdependence Day, and not only that, but a project that grew out of Interdependence Day called the Hexagon Project. So let's find out exactly what is Interdependence Day. And for that, we'll turn to Beth Burkhauser. Okay, Interdependence Day is a day that was proclaimed by... Dr. Benjamin Barber, uh, a uh, very noted professor uh, of uh, social issues, um, and he proclaimed uh, Interdependence Day as the day after 9-11, seeing the world in a different way, shifting our view of how we should see the world uh, as we are all connected in some way. So the word interdependence Um, He created it so that we could see, he formed a network of citizens, citizens without borders, uh, including artists and educators, students, politicians, business people, civic and religious leaders, and uh, as well as our mayors and uh, people who do lead the people, um, and recognize the interdependent nature of our world an advocate for new forms of constructive civil interdependence to solve problems that cross our borders. So the day after 9-11, he began in about uh, 2003, and our local civic leader, Sandra Myers, took up the banner of this. Uh, She helped him edit uh, a handbook called the Interdependence Handbook at about that time and uh, published it. And then the word spread throughout the country and the world, and Independence Day has been celebrated since then on September 12th, and we continue to do that in the city of Scranton and our northeastern Pennsylvania region, Uh, and we will be celebrating Independence Day uh, this year on September 12th. So it almost sounds like it has some kind of a basis then, or the, the roots of it, really were in northeast Pennsylvania, besides with with Sandra working with this gentleman, and who knew? Who knew? Right, right. right. Who who Uh, knew? He 
He was very instrumental. He's written some very uh, prescient books about the issues that we face today uh, with uh, divisions uh, uh, in the world. Um, and uh, uh, Sandra has been working diligently. She she actually probably has spent um, a, the, the, a concentration of her life uh, putting into practice the themes and the uh, the theories of interdependence. One of the things that she does in addition to uh, organizing Interdependence Day every year is to uh, conduct the Schummel Forum at the University of Scranton. And that, again, uh, is a forum of intellectuals, uh, uh, interesting individuals both from the University of Scranton, from our community, and across the world to give lectures and, and workshops uh, for our people here. Uh, that enlighten us about many, many different issues. Like they, they, it could cross uh, from the arts to politics to history. Uh, uh, her husband, uh, uh, Maury Myers, uh, has given lectures also about uh, his experience in the in the Deep South in the in the sixties. Uh, he was a freedom rider. So we we hear a lot of many, many interesting things that connect us to issues that are in existence today and give us historic background. So wow. The interdependence movement is an important issue, and uh, it uh, stays alive here in northeastern Pennsylvania. And I think it's, it's fascinating how things cross over. So let's talk to uh, Lisa a little bit, because Lisa brings to Interdependence Day some group that I might not think of, as Beth was telling us about all of the different groups, you're actually dealing with students that you're going to be bringing to Interdependence Day. And as an art teacher, how do you how do you explain that to the kids? Well, it's it's been a challenge each year to um, explain to the kids that we're not just here to create art just because it's pretty or we like to draw this or paint this. We have to put some meaning behind our art. On you know, on occasion, I like to mix it up. Um, so I do. I talk about the different topics like human rights and diversity, environment. Each grade uh, level, I focus something different. So the younger kids, the environment, they understand that um, more. And the older students will talk about diversity and some heavier issues. Um, but I let them. Usually, I let them choose. You know, from the list of different ideas, what what speaks to them the most. Sometimes we do a collaborative piece, um, like I have here, and sometimes we do individual pieces. And we have to tell our, our listeners that this is, it's like a quilt? It's a quilt, yes. What I did was um, I teach art. I also teach family consumer science, so we do sewing. I kind of merged both, you know, passions together, and um, we created this, uh, this quilt. So I had students decide if they wanted to work individually or with a partner, one student worked individually. I know there was two students that worked on this one particularly. Um, and then they created a piece of art on a piece of fabric, and we put it all together. So it just sort of speaks to what mattered to the students this year at this time. And we have everything from a peace sign mm -hmm. to flowers mm -hmm. to yin and yang <laughs> to um, oh, pride, pride right? um, and animals. Know, Animals, yeah. uh, the environment, yes, uh, just unity in general. Like, and, and they're all hexagon shapes, okay, and they all come together. They all connect together. Um, 
yeah, it's who, just. But who knew this started with its roots so much in Scranton? <laughs> and, and the, it's the, something to be proud of, it's, right? It certainly is because when you when you think about something like this, again, as Lisa said, the students come into an art class and they say, "I want to make something pretty so I can take it home, so I can put it on display." But Beth, now you gave them an opportunity to do something and. They've expanded their world. Yes, yes. I, I think it's very important that uh, educators and artists are people who do respond to the environment. They respond to the world as it is. And we have to be able to um, show our students that that form of art, not just a beautiful Sunset. arrangement of flowers <laughs> or what have right. you, but, you know, respond to the world. And this is one of the issues in education in general. Education has to become relevant and meaningful for our, our students. So um, this Hexagon Project, which is what it's called, uh, is international. Uh, it uses a hexagon as a metaphor for how we're interconnected because they are tessellations which infinitely connect, interconnect. And so uh, the, the project is motivational for many students because they end up seeing themselves as part of a larger whole. And that's what the whole concept of interdependence is about. And they also get to think about issues that are relevant to them. Okay, what in our classroom is relevant to you? And Lisa has, you know, many different, uh, a variety. No two are the same. And it's not uh, like you tell them we're going to focus on this or we're going to focus on that. You give yeah. them a whole a whole scope of different things. Now, mm -hmm. as getting, I want to talk about the fact that you do have, because a lot of people might be hearing this for the first time and they're saying, I'd like to find out more about this. I'm really interested. There's mm -hmm. going to be a panel discussion that's going to be uh, coming up on the 12th of September. Exactly. Uh, now, the interdependence movement is is somewhat separate from the Hexagon Project, but the, the themes all run together. And uh, Sondra Meyer's Interdependence Day uh, has a theme this year. There have been other themes. Um, for instance, last year was about uh, immigrants and refugees. This year, uh, the theme is climate change. And what can we do about it? And so everything that's so topical. Uh, yeah. 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 And so uh, on the 12th at the University of Scranton in the Rose Room, um, uh, fifth floor Brennan Hall, uh, will be a panel discussion. And the panel will uh, include uh, university professors, a student from the university, a high school student, and a concerned citizen. So we have a, a nice variety of voices here. And uh, there will be uh, others in the audience who are welcome to, it's open to the public, uh, basically. Uh, if anyone is interested, uh, they can uh, call uh, the university and just say, I'm interested in coming and uh, show up uh, by 5.30 on Thursday, September 12th. Uh, you can call uh, Linda Walsh at 570-941-7520, 
and um, you can make a reservation or yeah and I believe it's online too if you go to the University of Scranton oh I'm sure it uh, must be there and you uh, also have a display now this is yes so the Hexion project you uh, has a, uh, a video presentation about our 2019 uh, project that will be projected uh, as people enter uh, the the area in the Rose Room and we it it uh, it's usually quite interesting to see a slide presentation of all of the entries from across the world actually we're as I said we're international so there'll be all of those displayed uh, on the twelfth in addition to our uh, annual exhibit which is opening so uh, so the Hexagon Project has annually. Uh, celebrates Interdependence Month. Uh, we've extended it to the whole month for the visual arts, and it opens on this first uh, in first Friday, September sixth, at the uh, Marketplace Mall at downtown Scranton. Uh, we will be uh, using uh, the venue will be Stories Literacy Center, which is a very interesting place to see on the second floor between. Boscov's and uh, Library Express. So you can find us fairly easily. We'll be opening on uh, the evening. Um, we'll open uh, about uh, from 6 to 9 on uh, first Friday, the 6th. We will have entertainment and uh, uh, Mark Woodyett and Jacob Cole, uh, a great duo, inspiring uh, uh, artists will be playing. We'll have some community involvement with a mural that uh, people can become involved with creating. And uh, we'll have our display of hexagons. Also, um, we'll have visuals projected, which I think will be an exciting environment. So we'll have actual work, projected work, uh, some interviews, uh, things for people to look at throughout that space. And it's always an exciting time. We invite it's open to the public, and free. it's uh, just a, a great evening. It's free and admission. It's yes. free and open to the public. Yes, okay. and that and will the will the display stay there throughout the, the display? Month? Yes, okay. uh, we will be up uh, during the month uh, on in particular certain hours, not all of the time, because again we're um, a nonprofit, all volunteers. Many of us are retired art educators, librarians, people like that, and we uh, need to staff it. So it's it will be open more in the afternoons during the week, later afternoons during the week. And what every is that, day. Hexagon Project? That's the Hexagon work? Project. Now we have a website, uh, yes, www.hexagonproject.org, and uh, all of the information sh- will be there. And we also have a Facebook page, which is called The Interdependence Hexagon Project. But I think you'll be able to find us, and we'll have our Evite up there. And uh, so everyone is invited, and it's, uh, uh, we do have collaborative things going on that you can get your hands on something, and then you can also enjoy seeing the work uh, like the Riverside students. Uh, we have Scranton School District. We have the Abington Heights School District, Blue Ridge. Uh, we have quite a few of our Northeastern Pennsylvania schools always invited. And, uh, and they participate. 
we hope some of the students will come out for it also. And maybe even come out for the discussion on the and, 12th. Yes, and we and for the 12th, it, it really would be wonderful if, if teachers come, uh, bring some students to listen to the panel discussion. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's always very, very stimulating to uh, hear what people have to say from different age groupings and uh, segments of our, our population. And we'll also have featuring the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine a cappella singers Ooh. that evening. So that would be fun also. And uh, our MC is Gary Drapeck. And he's the president and CEO of United Way of Lackawanna and Wayne Counties. And he's, he's a great guy uh, to listen to. He, he puts the whole program together. And he can. <laughs> he knows exactly what this is all about. Yeah. Thanks to our guests, Beth Burkhauser, the director of the nonprofit Hexagon Project, and Lisa Temples, a teacher from Riverside Junior Senior High School and Little Hands Big Art in Scranton. You can go to their websites interdependencedaynepa.org or hexagonproject.org. And don't forget, the 2019 Interdependence Hexagon Project exhibit will be happening September 6th through the 30th. The special theme, Transforming Conflict. It's at Stories Literacy Center, the marketplace at Steamtown on the second floor in Scranton. Their opening night party, Friday, September 6th, and the recognition event on Sunday, September 15th. You can find more by visiting them on Facebook, Hexagon Project. Don't go away, more special edition to come. Welcome back to Special Edition. Mark the calendar, September 7th. It's going to be a big celebration. Tony Brooks and Patty Hughes are here, and they're going to tell us where and when and why. We have so many things that have been happening throughout the area, and of course, Wilkesbury, major hub for all kinds of things. You folks have something that's coming up. It's going to be a big September 7th. Who wants to give us, Tony, Patty, who wants to give us the rundown of part of the day? Well, first of what I'd like to say is anniversaries give us a particular outstanding time to celebrate our culture. And we are going to celebrate 250 years of Wilkesbury, the first community in all of northeastern Pennsylvania, with two grand events, one free for the family in Kirby Park with fireworks, and then a rooftop gala cocktail party on the top of the Citizens Bank building, which will overlook Kirby Park to see the fireworks as well. Patty, let's have you start with the early part of the day with the folks at uh, at Kirby Park where everybody can come and, and take part. Right, so it's um, Saturday, September 7th. It's going to start at 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's going to be at Kirby Park. We're going to have food vendors, amusement rides, tethered hot air balloon rides, Live music by Tom Petty Appreciation Band. And then at night, there'll be a hot air balloon glow and then fireworks to follow. And it's open to the public and it's free. Uh, starts at 11 a.m. and it'll probably go till 11 a.m. that night. Wow, that's exciting. So you've got a whole day. And then, Tony, now 
the people who are at Kirby Park are still going to see the fireworks, but you're taking them to another opportunity for another venue to see them. Yeah, that's correct. For a ticket event on the roof of the Citizens Bank building on South Franklin and Market Street, there will be a cocktail party for, well, we are told by the fire department could only handle 150 people, but the view is spectacular spectacular and it will look right out over the market street bridge and kirby park where at the end of the cocktail party we will see fireworks but what i'm most excited about is john wilkes and isaac berry will be there to greet you with a glass of champagne and take you up the elevator where rich jenkins jazz band will be playing wonderful music and jonathan's restaurant a fantastic new restaurant on north franklin street will provide all the food for the event how is it possible that they're going to be here and they've been around for 250 years? Well, they have been resurrected from the grave of London. Wow. We've flown them in on Virgin <laughs> Airlines and they will be here to celebrate the namesake of our city. You know, John Wilkes and Isaac Berry actually do not really uh, have never been here. They're not the founders of Wilkesbury. Our actual founder of Wilkesbury are two gentlemen, Zebulon Butler and John Durkee. And it so was, how come it's not called Butler Durkee? I, I know, right? Instead of <laughs> I, we're kind of glad it is not. I, <laughs> I always thought Durkeeville would be kind of an interesting name. But I, old folks will remember Fort Durkee Hotel on the public square. So there is that legacy that happens. But it was John Durkee who named it after John Wilkes and Isaac Berry. They were two British members of Parliament who both said when our revolution was starting, Remember that phrase, no taxation without representation? Absolutely. Well, John Wilkes and Isaac Berry got up in the middle of the House of Commons and would say, yes, they are right. We agree with them. Oh, Utterly amazing and very revolutionary for them to do that in the presence of King George III at the time. So all of this has then comes right over the ocean and lands here in Wilkesbury. Absolutely, lands right here in Wilkesbury. I mean, the original settlers of Wilkesbury were very revolutionary. Ninety percent of the Wyoming Valley supported the revolution at the time. But if you go to New York or Boston or Philadelphia, you have about a third of this population still supporting the king. So we're a very revolutionary place. Wow. From the Revolutionary War right through the Industrial Revolution with anthracite coal. Wilkesbury is revolutionary. So that's why we're having this 250th anniversary. Now, what is it the anniversary of? The Is it the anniversary of the birth date? or? Mm-hmm. So the anniversary is 1769, and it's the anniversary of the first settlement, permanent settlement of settlers from Connecticut. Oh. So Wilkesbury has various anniversary dates. So that's the founding and the settlement. 1806 is when we became a borough. 1871 is when we became a city. So this is the founding of the first permanent settlement. And it was September 7th? Uh, no, no, it was it, it was all throughout <laughs> that year. shaking her head. <laughs> so in February of 1769, 40 settlers came. And that's where you get the term 40 Fort for the borough of 40 Fort. The following month, another 200 settlers came. So in 1769, 240 settlers came to not only Wilkesbury, but Wilkesbury Township, Kingston Township, Hanover Township, Pittston Township, and Plymouth Township. Amazing. And Patty, you just happen to be involved with the city of Wilkesbury, where you plan all of these wonderful events. So it was nice of them 
to decide that they were going to do this so that 250 years later, Patty Hughes could come along and say, let's have a party. How did this come about? Nothing like a party by Patty. (laughs) Well, we teamed up with the Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society, the Times Leader, Diamond City Partnership, and Greater Wilkes-Barre Chamber, along with uh, Wilkes-Barre City Hall. And we knew that we had to come up with something big to celebrate this momentous event. So we wanted to do it in two different ways, one for a free one and then one for a paying one for the everyone to celebrate. Now, the one that's going to be the paid one at night, what are we talking as far as, I know it's got to be over 21, as Tony said, mm-hmm. but what would be the cost and um, you know a little bit about who came up with all that idea? So that's going to be on the rooftop of the Citizens Bank building. It's going to be heavy hors d'oeuvres by Jonathan's, cocktails with a commemorative wine glass, music by uh, Rich Jenkins, a special performance by Madison Domkowski, and then a spectacular rooftop view of the fireworks. Also, as Tony mentioned, greeted by John Wilkes and Isaac Berry. And it's, it's really a spectacular view up there. I've been up there three times. It's going to be really nice, just like the big cities do it. Tickets are on Eventbrite, and they are $125 per person. Celebrate the 250th anniversary of Wilkes-Barre's founding. And how long is that going to go? What time will people be able to start arriving there? So that's a 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. till the fireworks are finished. What about sponsors? Right, so I'd like to thank our sponsors, Community Bank, D&M Furniture, Comets Law, Penn Eastern Engineering, Hoban Insurance, and last but not least, Hoddle's Restaurant, one of the oldest restaurants in Wilkes-Barre, and um, they are graciously paying for the fireworks. Yeah, so that's a huge, huge help for this, and we're still looking for more sponsors. And how do people get in touch with you if they would like to be a sponsor? Right, so they could contact me um, at phughes at wilkes-barre.pa.us, or um, they can call Wilkes-Barre City Hall. Um, phone number is 570-208-4149. That's my direct line. And all they have to do is say, give me party patty, and we'll be uh, And we'll I'll be take your money. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, we're talking about all of these different things happening, and part of it's happening at Kirby Park. Was that before or after the founding of Wilkesbury, or was how did Kirby Park end up in all of this? So Kirby Park comes a lot later uh, until the 1920s. In 1924 is when Kirby Park was named in honor of FM Kirby, who donated the land for the park to the city. Oh. And a lot of people might know who Kirby is because FM Kirby Center for the Performing Arts was partially donated by. Uh, or the money raised by F.M. Kirby's grandson and Al Boscov back in the 1980s. Of course, the Kirby name is all over Wilkes-Barre. you got the Kirby Health Center, Kirby Park. There's the Kirby Library Mountaintop, the Kirby um, Hall at Wyoming Seminary, Kirby Hall also at Lafayette. There's a lot of philanthropy that the Kirby's done over the years. We have all of this history that's taking part, and when we look back over the 250 years at, especially at uh, Kirby Park, are you going to have anything kind of to relate to that since the um, since the Preservation Society is going to be involved? Yes, well, actually, we'll have the 24th Connecticut Regiment will be there in their um, 
costumes with their wares and will be demonstrating what it was like to be in the military during the Revolutionary War at that period. And, it, and people might be jarred a little bit because I said Connecticut. We originally were Connecticut. All of Northeastern Pennsylvania was at one time called Westmoreland County, Connecticut. Westmoreland be- Club. Correct, because <laughs> we were more land west of Connecticut. So those 240 settlers that came in 1769 come from Connecticut. And when the Revolutionary War started, the local regiment that was raised in, in support of the Continental Congress and George Washington was called the 24th Connecticut. That regiment still exists today. It's called the 109th Field Artillery on Market Street in Kingston. And they are the only National Guard unit in all of the country authorized to carry two state flags. So if you go, for example, to the July 4th celebrations at the Wyoming Monument, you will see the color guard of the 109th posting the flag of Connecticut and posting the flag of Pennsylvania. Patty, you're amazing. How did you go about getting all of these people to come to your party? This is just incredible. Well, I'm real good at telling people what to do. (laughs) When it comes to different things like this, I think... It's probably important, especially when you're looking at the the family outing at Kirby Park, to be able to give the area, because my head's just spinning right now, sure. where we've gone from Westmoreland and how we are west of more land. And well, just, we knew we a- wanted to make it bigger than the 4th of July celebration, because we are older than the, the country being one of the 13 colonies. So we knew we had to do something bigger. I didn't realize all this could come for from something like this well let's not miss it patty give us the uh give us the day rundown again kirby park the when the where sure so it's saturday september 7th 250th celebration of wilkes founder day at kirby park starting at 11 a.m in the morning with food vendors which we're still taking on vendors of all kinds um, amusement rides, hot air balloon tethered rides, live music by Tom P- Petty Appreciation Band, and then to end it with fireworks at dusk. That is an all-day event, and the rooftop gala at um, the Citizens Bank at 8 West Market Street will start at 7 p.m., and that is $125 per person. Um, it is limited to 150 attendees, and tickets are on Eventbrite, and you can contact me via email at phughes at wilkes-berry.pa.us with any questions. And, of course, the Wilkes-Barre City Facebook page has all the information. Sure. And, Tony, I'm going to give you the last word. You, you've given us so much information now about things that I think a lot of our listeners didn't realize. If someone would like to find out more, get in touch with you, what do they do? So if you want to learn more about Wilkes-Barre history, my day job is the director and curator of the Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society and the Zebulon Butler House Museum. We offer tours every year of the fantastic history and architecture of downtown Wilkes-Barre. I don't know if people realize this, but there are 250 buildings on the National Register for the River Street Historic District. And I'm very proud that all along Franklin Street and River Street, we've been able to preserve this fantastic architecture from our Connecticut Yankee uh, history all the way to uh, to the president. So if people really want to learn more history, you can follow me on the Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society's Facebook page where I post architectural history and social history all the time. And if you want to come on a tour of downtown Wilkes-Barre, it will be Saturday, September 21st at 11 a.m. meeting at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, which is the back of Boscov's on South Franklin Street. Charge for that? 
$10. $10. And then if anyone would like to find out more, you have the, uh, the Butler House? Yeah, the Butler House is on South River Street. It's a new project that we took on two years ago. We purchased the oldest house in Wilkes-Barre, built in 1793, encapsulating a 1773 log cabin of Zebulon Butler, who was the leader of the American forces at the Battle of Wyoming, and pretty much with him and John Durkee, the founders of Wilkes-Barre. And that house is slowly being turned into a museum that will interpret four generations of the Butler family that lived there from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War. You both come back and tell us about some more things? Anytime. Absolutely. (laughs) And the next time somebody says to me, eh, Wilkes-Barre, boy, I know who to send them to. That's right. You give them to us. Mark the calendar September 7th and check out the Facebook page of both Wilkes-Barre City and the Wilkes-Barre City Preservation Society for more information. Now don't go away. More special edition yet to come. Welcome back to Special Edition. Now we're going to meet author Amy Archer. The book is entitled, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. It's about school shootings, but not the way that you might think. Amy was able to talk to people involved in school shootings, the survivors, and we're going to find out exactly what they have to say. Amy, I love to talk to authors, especially local authors. Let's start off by having you give us just a little bit of your background, where you're from, and how you got involved in this current project. Well, thank you for having me, Paula. Um, So I grew up in Scranton. I've been here pretty much my whole life. My husband and I live in Scott Township now, which is only about 15 miles north of Scranton. And um, I started writing when I was 12 years old. And I've been writing ever since. And I've always written first person kind of memoir stuff. And last year, I was asked to be part of an anthology called My Body, My Words, where we asked authors to write letters to their bodies. And we did that. And my co-editor, Lauren Kleinman, and I really worked well together. We, we just have sort of the same artistic vision, which is very rare to find with artists and especially writers. So uh, we decided to do another project together. And in the meantime, what was happening with me personally is I was, like many parents, devastated by the Sandy Hook shootings. So I knew, you know, I got involved with the gun violence prevention advocacy groups right after that shooting. Uh, My daughters were the same age as those kids that were killed that day. So I knew that I had wanted to do something with gun violence. So Lauren and I talked and it seemed like a natural fit. So we started with a question, which is whatever happened to the kids that survived Columbine? What happened to them? Because we were also their age when that shooting happened. Right. And how long ago was that? That was in 1999. Wow. So they recently had their 20 year anniversary. Right. And it was... You know, I was a a junior in college when that happened, so I was like two years older than them, but around the same age. So Mm -hmm. I I was always aware that my life was sort of progressing simultaneously with theirs, but I always was aware that there was a large difference between our lives. So we started there. What happened with the kids who survived Columbine, and thus this project grew out of that. And the title of the book is? If I Don't Make It, I Love You. Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. And where did you come up with that? Is that from one of the actual incidents? 
Yeah, um, we started this project about a month before Parkland happened. So we started in January of 2018, and then Parkland happened on Valentine's Day. And I read an article um, about a young girl who texts her mother hiding from a closet saying, if I don't make it, I love you. And I just thought that is such a haunting statement on so many levels, but especially for a parent. So I knew that that really encompassed what we were trying to capture here. So what exactly is the uh, the makeup of the book then? Is it a retrospect of what happened at all of the different happenings? Is it following one particular, as you mentioned, uh, you growing up in an era of Columbine, does it start there? I Kind of give us a little bit of an overview. Okay, so the book covers... 50, 52 years of shooting. So we start with, we work in reverse chronology. So we start with the Santa Fe shooting that happened in Texas. So we start with the most recent, and then we work backwards. We go to Parkland and then Great Mills and all the shootings that happened leading up to Parkland. And we go all the way back through Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, West Nickel Mines, Columbine, Heath, Thurston. And we end with what is considered the first school shooting, which is the University of Texas Tower shooting in 1966. Wow. So we have 21 different schools, 84 survivors wrote their stories. And like I said, it spans 52 years. So these are not stories that I wrote for them. They're not as told to. These are actual narratives written by the survivors. Did you contact these people? We did. We interviewed over 100 for the book. So it took about... 18 months to put this together and it was hard and rewarding and I I think that you know people when they hear what I'm working on or they they hear about this book they're often skeptical or scared to read it Mm. it's not that bad it's there are moments in the book that are very painful I'm not gonna lie but there are moments in the book that are very hopeful and beautiful and and full of optimism so i think that it really gives the average american some sort of idea of what this is like to live through but also the path forward like how we recover from this these were the actual people that survived it wasn't parents well we have some parent we have the the way that we phrased it is anyone directly affected by a school shooting So we have actual students who were in the schools. We have students who were shot and survived in the schools. We have parents who lost children, children who lost parents, two trauma doctors that wrote for us that were on the scene during these. We have um, just a variety of different voices because what we are trying to show is the vicarious trauma that happens through these events, how it's not just the person who's in the school who suffers, how Mm -hmm. it's you know, the parents, the grandparents, the community members, the, the ministers, the teachers. The first responders. The first responders. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, that brings up an interesting point because, again, you're talking, you're going back to 1966. That I wasn't even aware that, because, again, I grew up in that era and mm-hmm. I knew nothing about that. So what have you found in talking to 1966 compared to 2019. Well, what's interesting is, and and not even the Texas Tower shooting, but even if you go back only as far as Columbine, 
we really thought that that it was just an anomaly, that it was just some sort of random attack. And I can remember watching Columbine and thinking that. Mm-hmm. And so, so what has happened because of that is when, when Columbine happened and even the Texas Tower shooting, you know, we learned a lot about those victims because the stories were treated with such care and respect because it was, it was almost seemed to be some sort of outlier, mm-hmm. right? So we learned a lot about the people who were killed at Columbine, and we almost came to know them. There were movies made about them. Same thing with Texas. There were plays, movies, books. Mm-hmm. But as the shootings are becoming more and more frequent, these, these stories of these survivors or those who were killed or those who lived are boiled down to like two minutes on the nightly news. And yeah. that's what we really hope to accomplish with this book is that there's more attention paid to the people who lived through this or lost their lives in these shootings. In that same type of way, uh, you know, mentioning about uh, two minutes on the nightly news, do you find or have you found in, in reading these that there has been a mention of internet, social media, because again, Columbine, a little bit starting, but now, boom. Yeah, communication in general plays a really interesting role in these shootings. Um, there are several themes that you see start to emerge, and communication is one of them. Like in the earlier shootings, you know, around Columbine, they started to have makeshift reunification centers. So they were, you know, taking the kids to places where they would be reunite with their parents and the parents just didn't know if their kid was dead or alive. And in the more recent shootings with cell phones, especially, it's heartbreaking, but it's also, you know, parents have the ability to communicate with their kids immediately to see if they're okay. But then you always have the stories of the parents. Like I worked with one mother from Santa Fe, Texas, and her daughter Kimberly was killed. She was 14. And she wrote, like she talked to me about sending that text message and never seeing the read receipt. And like a little detail like that just haunts you. You know, oh. like you send this message and you know your kid is dead by that point. So it's like, and then all the parents of Parkland waiting in those parking lots for those cell phones to ring. And it, it's just it really... The communication or lack thereof becomes a common theme. Well, the reason I mention that is that's pretty much where you got the title. Yeah. Came from a cell phone call. Yeah, absolutely. And again, when you think Columbine, when you think in that area, you didn't have all of that because it wasn't that prevalent as it is. Right. What have you learned from all of this? I mean, you know, you got involved with gun control you got involved in that kind of area Mm -hmm. have you learned anything have you learned from the people that have been involved whether it's a necessity or not a necessity well i think my biggest takeaway is that we need better resources for the survivors of these shootings um there are you know these large national groups like every town and the brady campaign who are fighting gun violence prevention but they're not really able to do both and support the survivors adequately. So I really feel like the survivors need a lot of mental health support, a lot of physical health support. A lot of them who were shot in school are still living with the physical ramifications of that. And you know, nobody's paying for that health care. Like that's something that they're putting out out of pocket. So especially now we're starting to see parents 
know, we're getting to an age where we're starting to see like cyclical trauma. Like we're seeing parents who live through school shootings taking their kids Never even to thought school. about that. Yeah, we have two schools in Kentucky, um, Heath High School, which I believe was in 1997 or 8, right before Columbine. We have parents who lived through that, had their children in a different school in Kentucky that had a shooting in 2018. So you have this cyclical trauma now. So, you, you know, in a lot of the the mental health effects and, and trauma that they felt from their original shooting is starting to come up now mm-hmm. in how they parent. So I really think that they need a lot of support. And I know that there's some smaller groups like the Rebels Project, which was started by started right after the Aurora movie theater shooting. And it was started by a couple of uh, graduates from Columbine High School who lived through the shooting. They uh, help support mass shooting survivors. Like, that's their thing. They don't fight for for any kind of political change. All they do is support survivors. And I think that we need more of that for them. This country owes it to them, in my opinion. Do any of these people that now you're saying, which I never even thought about, the fact that you have these people that survived and now they have children. Yep. Have they come up with maybe suggestions or this must, th- Amy, I hope there's going to be a second book because this is just fascinating. It, it is fascinating. Um, I know of one survivor in particular. Her name is Jamie Amo and she was in Columbine. She was not shot, but she lost friends in Columbine. She was in the school when it happened and she has children And she didn't really think about or deal with her own trauma around her own shooting until she had children. And she accompanied one of her children to school one day as like a helper parent in her kindergarten class or something. They did a lockdown drill, like a a volunteer, a lockdown active shooter drill. Yeah, what we we used to think was big for a fire drill. Yeah. So they did one of those and she just panicked. And she realized at that point that she had to start advocating for change so she she does a lot of advocacy work but she also has introduced in pennsylvania and i'm sorry i don't know the name of this bill jamie she introduced a victim's resource bill so she's trying to get co-signers to sign on to that right now so there there are survivors fighting for survivor resources Mm -hmm. and i just i feel like i said that this country owes that to them and one of the things that's amazing to me is a lot in a lot of their stories particularly with that population around those three or four shootings around Columbine, they feel like they should have solved this problem. Like a lot of them echoed that in their stories that they were sorry for their kids because they felt like they should have solved this. And I remember reading it thinking, are you like, what have you to be sorry for? We should be sorry that we did not fix this. Right. For your children. Did they have any kind of insight? Having um, been on the inside? Yeah, I mean, they're all very active. So um, there are several different types of groups that have sprung up out of very recent shootings, especially Sandy Hook. Mm. Like a lot of the parents, right. um, we worked with Alyssa Parker. Her daughter Emily was killed, and she started Safe and Sound Schools. And they just laser focus on. Let's not worry about legislation because that's a very slow moving change. Let's focus on what we can do to make our schools safer immediately. Mm. And then you have groups like Sandy Hook Promise started by Mark Barden, who lost his son Daniel in the shooting. And they focus on like bullying prevention and and warning signs of kids who are 
um, isolated and might commit these kinds of crimes. So you do have different types of advocacy happening now. It's not just lump. People tend to lump it all under gun control, but it's really not. Right. I'm just, I'm fascinated. Where is your book available? It's available on Amazon right now for pre-order. It's coming out September 3rd. It'll be available anywhere books are sold. And once again, give us the title. It's called, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. And I would like to say that we're having a fundraiser right now, and you can find it on our webpage, if I don't make it the book dot com or you can find me on social media and i'm always talking about it we're having a fundraiser we're trying to raise money to send a copy of this book to every u.s senator wow yeah by certified mail hoping they'll read it (laughs) (laughs) make sure you get their signature not somebody at the desk exactly amy this is it's just fascinating i I, i'm looking forward to unfortunately a follow-up but if you're talking to these people that you've talked to before, I think they have much more to tell. They have a lot to say. And that's part of the, the impetus for this project is we felt like the survivor was the voice that was missing in this discussion. Author Amy Archer and her book, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. You can pre-order it now on Amazon and it will be coming out everywhere on September 3rd. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four Donchich. the step back three you bet. music you set my world on fire yes, and even podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on tune in go to tune in.com or download the tune in app to start listening